This is Mandy, calling from the Ohio 12th District. This is Aiden in Columbus, Ohio, where I just cast my vote in the special election in the Ohio 12th District. This is Sarah. And this is Corey, and we're sitting outside the Tuttle Park Recreation Center, having just voted in the Ohio 12th District special election. This podcast was recorded at... This podcast was recorded at... This podcast was recorded at... 10.47 a.m. on Wednesday, August 8th. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Okay, Okay, here's here's the the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. On Monday, we were in your feed to prep you for Tuesday's big primary day. Today, we're back to give you the results. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And there were some big winners and some big losers. But we don't really have the final results in two of the races that we were watching most closely. Uh, Domenico? Yeah, I mean, the race that everybody was watching was the special election in Ohio's 12th congressional district. Where our timestamp was taped. Oh, yes. There we go. And that's just uh, north of Columbus, Ohio, in the Columbus suburbs and some of the surrounding rural areas, which generally is a place that should be pretty reliably Republican and has been for a long time. But it turns out that in this race, it was pretty much a 50-50 race. And it turns out that fewer than 1,800 votes now separate the Democrat Danny O'Connor, who's in second, and Troy Balderson, who's ahead. There are some 8,500 provisional and absentee ballots that are still to be counted, and those will not even start being counted for another 10 days. And just to go deep dive on the math here... The provisional ballots, we don't know if all of them will count. They're provisional for a reason. And the absentee ballots may or may not be returned. Those are just the ones that are out. Right. And there's no way to exactly know which direction they're going to go. If you want to get really into the deep dive of the math here, (laughs) Balderson being ahead, if you're Danny O'Connor, you need about 55% of the remaining votes to get within the 0.5 percentage point threshold for an automatic recount. If he wants to get ahead, he would need something like 60, 61 percent of all the remaining votes to get ahead in that race. And you could argue that the results of this race actually don't matter. This is a right. this is a <laughs> so all that deep go- diving we well, just no, no, did. No, 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 because look, this is a race that's going to be fought again in November. So three gonna, months from three now. Three months from now, we're going to have the same race again. Just to explain why we're going to relive this race once again in three months, it's because this is a special election to fill a seat that was vacated. And then every single House seat in America is up for re-election or is open uh, in November. Every two years. Every two years. That's how it works. What's important and significant is what the results and the turnout tell us or don't tell us about what might happen nationwide in November. And here's why the results overall just really don't matter. You know, a win is a win, sure. And if Republicans are able to, you know, get this win here, it's a big deal for them. But at the same time, you know, you have to consider that Democrats need 23 seats to take back the House. And when I was crunching the numbers yesterday, I found that there are 69 seats held by Republicans that either Trump won in 2016 by less than this, or Hillary Clinton has won. So, You know, when you look at that, that's a much wider field, those 69 seats, than the 23. And this may be where that bar is set. Right. And if and if the Democrat came so close in this one, assuming what we know now is the actual result, that means the Democrats should be able to do better in those 69 districts. The other thing that we don't know is the Republicans 
put in tremendous amounts of money and resources. They sent their biggest guns to campaign, including Donald Trump, who came in for a special election for the House of Representatives. Usually presidents don't do that. So with all that effort... <laughs> Usually they, presidents don't do a lot of things that President that's Trump true. does. But for all that effort, maybe they'll pull them out by a hair. They are not going to be able to do that in 69 races this fall. Republicans will argue that special elections are not like the general election structurally. And that's true. And there is some argument to that because, you know, there's a lot of money, outside money in particular, that winds up coming into a race like this because it's the only ball game in town, right? This started getting a lot of attention. Lots of liberal money from New York and California, as the Republicans would say, came into this district and it swamped Balderson, the Republican. But overall, I think Republicans spent well, more on yes, this race than Democrats in the end. So, By a yeah. lot. Right, because Republicans saw what was happening and they needed to bring the resources in to help. They're saying that in the fall, when you have incumbents with name ID that's very high, that people know in these districts and who have strong war chests, they won't need to come to the rescue. Now, that's the argument, but it's certainly a lot of leaks in the but boat. That's, but the question is... Will Democratic enthusiasm, which we clearly saw in this race and we've seen in every other race because they're overperforming their turnout from the last midterms, will that carry into November or are these special elections these kind of fluky races that only attract the most motivated and the most energized? And what we know from history is that ordinary Republican voters tend to turn out more in midterms than ordinary Democratic voters. So can Democrats change that equation? One question that this race raises and that Mara mentioned is President Trump swooped in at the last minute. He held a rally. President Trump and his campaign are declaring victory here. They are saying, we pushed this guy over the top. He was in a lackluster situation and then he won. Did the president help? Oh, I look, <laughs> it's, it's hard to measure that because he also motivates people on the other side. But I would say if you look at his record overall in many, many, not all, but many of the places that he has endorsed a Republican in a primary, that Republican has won. In general, Trump's endorsement in Republican primaries has mattered. It might be hard to measure exactly what his endorsement did in this special election because he could have motivated Democrats just as much as he motivated the Republican base. But inside the Republican Party, Trump does have a lot of power to energize the base. So one thing that Domenico and I had been looking at with this race, the Ohio 12, is turnout in the suburbs in the inner suburbs where the Democrat did best, turnout was higher than in the more rural counties where the Republican did better. Right. This entire district, the special election, took place over like six or seven counties. And the one with the largest concentration of people was the suburban county, Franklin County, where O'Connor was the Franklin County recorder. Now, in Franklin itself, turnout was about 42 percent of registered voters. That's unheard of for a special election to be that high. Overall in the district, when you include those other half a dozen counties, turnout was about 37 percent overall. Now, when you look at some of those rural, more rural counties, you start to drop off. It was only about 30 percent in the more rural counties in this special election. You both talk about how there's this intensity and there's this focus and and voters are like more interested than they normally would be in a midterm on both sides of the aisle. It makes me think about how typically after an election year, ratings drop off for news or uh, subscriptions go down like 
the awareness, the sort of focus on politics is so heightened in the country. I mean, it's like politics has replaced sports. And I guess these midterms are are going to be part of that heightened awareness. Well, I think the heightened awareness has to do with one word, and that's Trump. Trump. I mean, Trump, Trump, Trump. Trump. the, (laughs) The fact of the matter is that, you know, we talk about how Trump is able to turn out his base. He is even more effective at turning out Democrats. And even Republicans will acknowledge that, but they realize, they recognize that Trump puts them in a vice because it's very difficult for them to win by alienating their base, but it's also difficult for them to win in some of these bluer counties than, let's say, Ohio 12. You know, we talk about there's 69 other counties that Trump won by less or Hillary Clinton won. In those places, in Virginia, for example, we saw that be the case. It's much more difficult for them to play this game of driving out the base and not alienating the other side or alienating independents to go vote for Democrats. And that's why we're going to be watching really carefully Trump's travel schedule. Yeah. Because he says he wants to be out six to seven days a week. He'll go anywhere. He did come into this Ohio House district, which is unusual for a president. But for the most part, he's been going to Senate races in red states where he won by big margins where there's a Democratic incumbent. And that makes sense. I think the question is going forward in the House battleground, are we going to see him trying to go to places where he runs that exact risk that Domenico just described, where yes, he can fire up some Republicans, but he might fire up more Democrats. I was just talking to one of his allies yesterday who says, expect to see him out there. Like, that everywhere. He, is, he is going to be everywhere. He loves well, doing these rallies. That's what I'm saying. It remains to be seen what everywhere means. What that means. <laughs> There's only so many places well, you can go, but it's, it's going to be a lot. You know, the thing is, he's not going to listen to, you know, the talking heads who are going to tell him that his policies or his demeanor are turning off independence. He doesn't care about that. All he knows is his track record. People told him he couldn't win in the upper Midwest. There was this blue wall, but he won. He took that wall down. And until he sees differently in an election, he's going to keep doing what he's done. There is much more to talk about, but we have to take a quick break. When we come back, another cliffhanger in a race where President Trump made an endorsement. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, developing solutions to support strong families and communities to help ensure a brighter future for America's children. More information is available at AECF.org. Sam Sanders here. On my show, we talk to stars on the rise. Jimmy O. Yang from Crazy Rich Asians in Silicon Valley. Brian Tyree Henry from Atlanta. Darcy Carden from The Good Place and HBO's Barry. All in your feed now. Join us on It's Been a Minute from NPR. All right, we are back. We left you with a cliffhanger. Now, the results, which are in fact a cliffhanger. Uh, we are talking about the gubernatorial primary in Kansas. The first time anyone has ever talked about a cliffhanger in Kansas. Because there's no there are cliffs no cliffs in Kansas. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. People are going to be like, Domenico, there are cliffs. Oh, show me. I would love to see. I know Missouri is the, the show, show me, me state. state. It's a sunflower state. But show me the pictures of cliffs in Kansas. Please send that in. Okay, the cliffhanger in Kansas is Chris Kobach. Man, how about that for alliteration? Chris <laughs> Kobach, the Secretary of State, against Jeff Collier, who is the current incumbent, incumbent governor. President Trump endorsed Kobach over Collier, and Kobach is in the lead, but as narrow as you possibly could get. He's up by only 191 votes over more than uh, 250,000 votes in this race. And this is one race where Democrats were thrilled 
that Trump decided to endorse Kobach because they think that his hardline views on immigration and voting rights are going to help them win the governor's mansion in Kansas, which would be quite a feat. Kansas is kind of a laboratory for conservative policies. They've gone almost as far as they can go with under the former governor, Sam Brownback. And, Who was wildly unpopular well, yes, because and of his is, and, and there's been a kind of backlash to that. And Chris Kobach kind of represents that uh, deeply conservative point of view. So if he wins this primary, Democrats think there's going to be a very competitive race, more competitive than if the uh, sitting governor right. had. And the Democratic candidates, Laura Kelly, who won pretty easily last night, and you know that she's going to have her campaign already starting those negative attack ads uh, against Kobach and figuring out what their message is going to be. And we should remember, it hasn't been that long since Kansas had a Democratic governor. Kathleen Sebelius was governor of Kansas before she left uh, to be uh, President Obama's Health and Human Services Secretary. Now, you mentioned that the Democratic nominee uh, for governor in Kansas is a woman. This is part of a larger trend. Yeah, the larger trend here, which, you know, our colleague Danielle Kurtzleben has been tracking all of the women who've been running uh, in this in this election. And, you know, everyone talks about the year of the woman. Well, we have officially hit the record number of nominees for general election races uh, in an election cycle who are women. Which is pretty remarkable, though, then again, maybe not that surprising, given uh, sort of the way women reacted to President Trump's election and Hillary Clinton's defeat. Certainly spurred a record number of women, in particular Democratic women, to go and become more active and to run for office. Record numbers of women running for office this cycle than ever seen before. And I've got the numbers to put behind it. Uh, Got them from the Center for American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. For the first time, 11 women have been nominated in gubernatorial races in a single year. And there are at least 173 women who have won nominations in U.S. House races. That is a lot. That is a lot. And speaking of female people, there was a really interesting race in Michigan in the Democratic primary for governor. Let's go to the scoreboard, Domenico. So Gretchen Whitmer, uh, who was a little bit more tied to the establishment here, uh, wound up winning in a in a pretty much a landslide over Abdul El Sayed, who Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Bernie Sanders had backed and campaigned for, actually, and uh, Sri Thanadar, who had also gotten a lot of uh, attention in this race. But Whitmer, it's really fascinating because a lot of people tried to tag her as the establishment candidate when, frankly, her record statewide had been as pretty progressive otherwise. And this is a trend that we're seeing. To give Bernie Sanders his due, there's no doubt that the energy in the Democratic Party is on the left, that they are definitely shaping Democratic Party positions on health care and other issues, but they seem to be better at generating press coverage than actual victories in these primaries. And this and, was and, a big and this got a tremendous amount of attention, mostly because Al Sayed was a Medicare for all guy. He was a Bernie-backed candidate, uh, but he lost by a lot. And that was the trend in a lot of other races where Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez came in to endorse someone. Lots and lots of press coverage, but in the end, fell short 
by curvature of the earth. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> they did. They do wind up losing in a lot of these races. You know, they would argue that they're not really that well-funded and that if they had gotten more attention and that people would back them, then they could do better. Uh, they also argue that they have also changed the conversation within a lot of uh, the issues that Democrats are running on. You know, you everybody sort of knows what they're running on. $15 minimum wage, Medicare for all. And Ocasio-Cortez really had kind of a mixed record last night because, you know, in some of these high profile places, she actually wound up not doing very well. She did get a win in Michigan uh, with a candidate who uh, she endorsed, Rashida Tlaib, uh, who would wind up being the first female Muslim uh, congresswoman, most likely because this is a pretty liberal district. It was John Conyers district. Uh, and and Republicans also, aren't even contesting it. That's right. Yeah. And she'd also be the first uh, Palestinian American uh, who is in Congress. A district much like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's own. That's absolutely true. And I think the thing is what we've seen is as she's tried to move this democratic socialist message beyond the borders of a place that's that liberal, it's been a little bit more difficult. Um, And, you know, they tried to take on William Lacey Clay in Missouri, for example, last night. He's somebody who has been there for a long time. He is a civil rights icon in many ways. His father founded the Congressional Black Caucus. And her candidate, who was an African-American female pastor, uh, wound up with about 30 percent of the vote, which is pretty good considering that she was fairly unknown, but didn't take him out. While we're in Missouri, there is not a candidate, but there is a there was a ballot measure that I think is worth talking about. Because it it's really interesting. It was it's related to organized labor. There was a state law, a right to work law. A lot of states, conservative states, have passed these so-called right to work laws that are basically aimed at constraining labor unions. Yeah, it prevents them from collecting dues um, from everyone who they represent. Organized labor came in. They collected twice as many signatures as necessary to put this referendum on the ballot. And then they won by two to one, which is extraordinary. Organized labor has been on the losing end of almost every political fight in this country for a generation. And you see it at the Supreme Court. You see it all over the country with these right to work laws. But they won one in Missouri. And Richard Trumka, who's the head of the AFL-CIO, was at a breakfast I went to last week who said that despite predicting success in this referendum, he said that he has never seen this level of grassroots organizing energy for about a generation, just in general. I was going to say, you could probably extrapolate out what happened last night in just the overwhelming win in a Republican state. I mean, this was two-thirds. It wasn't even close uh, to repeal this. And it really does speak to the Democratic organizational strength this year. And that, I think, is a pretty big deal. Yeah, and, and, and there's something else. It's, it's, it's yes, labor poured tremendous amounts of money into this, and they're not going to be able to do that, replicate that all over the country. But when you see red state teacher strikes, that's a wild card to watch for in November. Oklahoma, you know, West Virginia, these places Kentucky. where there's Kentucky. You know, so you, you have all of this energy and organizing energy um, in red states. And that's the kind of thing that if Claire McCaskill, the Democratic embattled incumbent in Missouri, is going to survive, that's what's going to help her survive. She is a senator from Missouri. She is on the ballot in November. She has to be looking at this ballot measure victory and saying, huh, 
Yeah, Maybe grass, I'm okay. grassroots doing pretty good. Yeah. yeah, like, hey, they organized for, for that. Maybe they can organize for me. There's no doubt that in the larger war, Republicans are winning. Union labor, organized labor is losing. Yeah. But as a tea leaf that we're trying to look at after last night as to what we might be able to expect in November, this is a sign of grassroots Democratic enthusiasm. All right, let's leave that there. We will be back tomorrow with our regular weekly roundup. And there's a lot to talk about, including uh, the Paul Manafort trial that's been ongoing. Until then, send us your timestamps recorded for the top of the show to nprpolitics at npr.org. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. And I'm zipping up my ostrich coat. <laughs> Did you see the onion had him come in to the courtroom it's with Manafort. a coat made up s- of live puffins? <laughs> oh, my God. It was really funny. <laughs> Did you He's see like the coat, puffins. though? It's like a bomber jacket. Well, yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's leather. Giant. It's not ostrich feathers. It's ostrich, it's ostrich, it's ostrich skin. skin. I know, yeah. but I, I pictured I didn't like, even know that a bird 15 well, made grand. leather. I pictured like lapels and a blazer, but no, it's a bomber. It's, it's a bomber. It looks like something. It's a little more.